I'm going to be reading from John 14, starting from John 14, beginning in verse 16. John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. And then chapter 15 of John, verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. And then chapter 16, verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ truly a finished work. And we thank you, God, for the ministry that you have with us each moment of every day through the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is in us to teach us, to guide us, and to bring about the sanctification, Lord, that you have saved us for, to bring about the conformity to Christ, God, that pleases you. And we pray as we look at your word and think on um, the statement of faith for this body, that we would understand clearly, God, what you have said to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's daylight savings time, so we may see other people coming in in the next few minutes. It is spring break, and um, all the students from his hill are gone, so that's why we're a little thinner today than we normally would be. We are looking at the Bernie Bible Church Statement of Faith and Article 4, which I think is up on the screen, um, is where we're at today. And this is principally about the person of the Holy Spirit and his work. The first article of our Statement of Faith is on the Word of God. The second on the person of God, or what we would call theology proper. And then the third on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christology. And this one centers on the Holy Spirit, or pneumatology. Um, I cannot, in, in one sermon, give um, a whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I would, um, as I've been studying, I, again, on the Holy Spirit um, in preparation for this, I thought... That would be a great series, just to spend some time talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But today, the goal is to look through this fourth article. And you'll see it's a little more lengthy than the other ones. It's three whole sentences, each with its parts. And so it says, The Holy Spirit makes believers children of God in regeneration and, and indwells, seals, and baptizes them into the church, the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. So that's a mouthful. And now a second sentence. The baptism 
um, of the Holy Spirit occurs at the time when one places his trust in Jesus Christ as personal Savior and not at a time subsequent to it. And in the third sentence, the Holy Spirit bestows spiritual gifts on each believer and makes a godly life possible by filling or controlling the yielded Christian. So let me just break that down. And so the first sentence is where we'll start. The Holy Spirit makes believers children of God in regeneration and indwells, seals, and baptizes them into the church, the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. And so we have to start by looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of confusion out there on who the Holy Spirit is, even how we refer to him. Um, the King James Bible refers to him as the Holy Ghost. And we don't like that so much because ghost um, brings to mind things that we don't believe in. We, we don't believe that when people die that some of them are just disembodied um, ghosts that travel around and haunt people. We don't, we are, he is not a haunting presence, the Holy Spirit. Um, he is a person. He is spirit. God is spirit. Man is flesh. And so it's, it's better, and it is actually more true to the Greek here to translate it spirit because it's the Greek word um, pneuma, which has to do with spirit, not ghost. But he is a person. Um, he is not an it. And many times, not in the Bible, never in the Bible do you see him referred to as an it, but many times as you hear people talk, even Christians, evangelicals, they'll mistakenly make reference to the Holy Spirit as an it. I think he would take offense at the misuse of his personal pronoun. Um, <laughs> um, don't need to go into that anymore. Um, but he is, the pronoun here matters, and it is a personal pronoun, him, not it. He is fully God. He is not less God. We saw when we looked at, at the second article on the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we refer to the Holy Spirit as the third person, but he is not a lesser person. He is absolutely 100% God. Three persons who share the same essence. Um, his role is different than Father and Son. He, in terms of role, um, in terms of hierarchy, he would have the role where he responds to the initiative and the authority of the Father and the Son. So he is the one who is being sent. He is not the sender. And that he's fine with that because there's no, there, there's no selfishness, there, there, there's no pride in the Godhead, and he is absolutely happy, maybe that's not the best word, joyful in the role that he has. And in fact, the joy of the Holy Spirit is a, is a frequent use of, of, of description throughout the New Testament. That we know that he not only convicts us of our sin and does many other things, regenerates the believer, sanctifies the believer, but he is a spirit of both joy and peace. So to have the spirit and to be operating under the influence of the spirit will be a life that is characterized by joy and peace because this, the spirit is, is a joyful person. He can be grieved, um, which is an indication of his personhood, but he does not have a personal name. He is just always referred to as the Holy Spirit or simply the Spirit. 
We don't know why. There is no personal name given to him in the Bible. If he has one, it is not revealed to us. Father is personal. Um, we call our own dads father. And obviously, Jesus Christ is personal. But Holy Spirit is not a personal name. It is more of a title or a description than it is a person's name. But it is absolutely appropriate to refer to him as Holy Spirit because that's what we see being done throughout the New Testament. He lives to glorify Christ. One of the verses that I read here from John, Jesus says that, that he glorifies me. When the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And then he says later, I didn't read this verse, verse 14, he shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. So he loves to exalt Jesus. His one delight is to lift up Jesus and to exalt him. So I have often said that a spirit-filled church will always be about Jesus Christ because the spirit witnesses of Christ, glorifies Christ. He is perfectly content with us not even knowing what his personal name is if he indeed has one. He wants all the attention to be on the Lord Jesus. So when a church becomes all about the Holy Spirit, I personally think the Spirit is grieved because he wants the attention to be on Jesus Christ. And Christ, in turn, will deflect the attention to the Father. He came to glorify the Father. It's interesting that we don't find the Holy Spirit being addressed in prayer. Sometimes you'll hear Christians and they'll pray, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I, I wouldn't go so far as to say they should never do that. But again, it seems that the Spirit is, is perfectly content to lead us in prayer to guide us in prayer, to intercede for us as we pray, and never to be addressed in prayer. And so we don't find the New Testament anyone praying to the Holy Spirit. They are praying to Jesus. They are praying to the Father. But we don't find them praying to the Holy Spirit, unless I'm missing a verse that you can correct me on that later if I am. We all have an, an anointing from the Holy One, an anointing which teaches us, and I believe that anointing is simply the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 20 and 27 says we all have this anointing. In the context, because it is a personal, the, the anointing is a person who teaches us, I believe that anointing is the person of the Holy Spirit. We'll hear people say, well, that person has a tremendous anointing from God. I understand what they're saying, but we need to be careful there because no one has more of the Holy Spirit than any other person. The Holy Spirit is a person, and either you have him or you don't. Paul says in Romans 8 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So either you have him or you don't. You can't get more or less of a person. Jesus says that the Father gives the Spirit without measure. And he's speaking of the Holy Spirit when he says that. The Holy Spirit is given without measure. You're given all of the Holy Spirit, not some of the Holy Spirit. 
So when we say that someone has a special anointing of the, from the Spirit, we should not think that they have more of the Spirit. It would be what we're trying to say, and I prefer to use some word other than anointing, is that that person is experiencing or evidencing um, a particular enabling from the Spirit. They seem to be more enabled than some other person might be for that particular task. Maybe it's serving. Maybe it's showing hospitality. Maybe it's evangelism. Maybe it's teaching or preaching. Wherever the gifts are, and we'll get to that with the third sentence here, the Spirit gives gifts, but wherever there are gifts, the First Corinthians tells us that the gifts are not given in the same measure. Some are given more of a particular gift, maybe just for a particular time that they have. They seem to be expressing more of that gift. And so I think that's what we're seeing when it looks as though a person has a special anointing from God. I think it would be more accurate to say they have a special enabling from God because we all have the anointing, which is the Holy Spirit. So much more that we could say about the Holy Spirit, but this is about more than, than that. There's a lot It's in this doctrinal statement. So the Holy Spirit makes believers children of God in regeneration. And so let me unpack that again a little bit. So it doesn't say the Holy Spirit makes believers. It says the Holy Spirit makes believers children of God. And it's stated that way for a reason. So the Spirit's work is to cause those who, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to become children of God. We take this largely from John 1.12, where we're told that as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So believers are made the children of God by the Holy Spirit. Believers are those who believe in or receive the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of eternal life. We understand from the Bible that the salvation is 100% the work of God. No one can take credit for his own salvation. And yes, we believe to be saved, but that doesn't mean that we can take credit for our salvation because faith is simply invoking the activity of another. It's trusting in Jesus to save us. We are, yet one, salvation is 100% the work of God, and we believe to be saved, and both of those two statements are true. This tells us that not all people are children of God. You are not born a child of God. In fact, you are born alienated from God. You are born a child of wrath, not a child of God. Scripture is very clear on this. You can be born a Muslim. You can be born a Mormon. But you cannot be born a Christian. No one is born a Christian. You become a Christian because you have Christ in you. And you have Christ in you because you've placed your faith in him alone for salvation. So regeneration, big word, is new birth. It is what Jesus spoke of to Nicodemus, and he says, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You might just look at John 3 
in your Bibles at this interaction that, that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And um, one thing that stands out is the, his, the necessity, the imperative to be born again or to be regenerated. In verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. In verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then coming down to verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So there is no um, option here. The only way to become a child of God is through regeneration. That is to be born again. So regeneration is new birth. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in response to belief in Jesus Christ. As one person said, we are born degenerate. In salvation, we become regenerate. Not only does the Holy Spirit um, cause new birth, He causes us to become children of God, but He also does a number of other things. He indwells, seals, and baptizes the believer, the child of God, into the church, the body of Christ, at the moment of salvation. He indwells. So this is why I read from John 14, 15, and 16 this morning, and I especially like when in verse um, chapter 16, where he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is advantageous to us. It is better. It is to your advantage that I go away. Think about that. We would all love to have Jesus here in person. Wouldn't that be something? We have students right now at his hill that are in Israel. And they, I think the second day they were there, they were in Capernaum, and they got to see the synagogue of Capernaum where Jesus used to frequent. That synagogue has been excavated, and the tiles that Jesus stood on are still in that synagogue. It's amazing. I'm so glad they could be there. But they will never want to come home because they have to leave Jesus' land behind. And somehow you leave Jesus behind when you leave Israel. See, that's nonsense. And that's one of the dangers of going to Israel. It's like, oh my, you know, and to be baptized in the Jordan River, it's a big business in Israel, I want to tell you what. I mean, the tour buses are lined up 40 deep, and I'm not exaggerating. The parking lot is massive, where all the tour buses are coming in so all the Christians can be baptized where Jesus was baptized, because somehow that's more special. My mom was baptized in the Jordan, so don't tell me. I'm not making, you know, I'm being careful here. Mom, if you were here, <laughs> I'd still be teasing you about it. I understand. Very special thing. Special to be where Jesus was. But it's more special to have the Spirit of God indwelling us. The Holy Spirit is in us. And that is a bigger deal than Jesus being with us. It is to your advantage he says, that I depart so that I can send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to you. We are better off having Christ in us than having Christ with us. It's amazing what God has done. And so 
He indwells. Again, John 14, 16, and 17, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold Him or know Him, but you know Him, because He abides with you, and He will be in you. He is called the Helper. He will be in us forever. He is the Spirit of truth. We are so blessed. He is not only indwelling us, but He seals us. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Promise of what? Promise of being with Him. You ever wonder whether I really get to go to heaven or not? Ever question whether you know, have assurance of your salvation? One of the reasons we've been given the Holy Spirit is that He is a pledge. He is a guarantee. He is a promise that when you exit this life, you will be with God in glory. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that. From 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22, Now he who established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge or a guarantee of our salvation and our being with him forever. He indwells, he seals, and he baptizes. And this is where it starts to get a little confusing. To baptize is to make one with something. It's an act of identification. And in this case, it is the Spirit of God identifying us with the body of Jesus Christ, the church. And so we aren't just made one with Christ, but we are made one with the people of Christ. And the Spirit of God does this the moment that you become a Christian. The moment you are regenerated, you are made one with the body of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, By one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. So that's where I'm taking that from. The baptism here in this part of our doctrinal statement is about the Spirit of God making us one, identifying us with the people of God, the church, the body of Christ. He baptizes us into the church, the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The church is not an organization. It is a living organism. It is an eternal life form. You've heard of, you've heard of which we don't believe in, most of us, transitional life forms. Well, this is an eternal life form, the church. It is the bride of Christ. It exists now, and it will also exist in heaven and on the new earth. The bride of Christ is something that does not go away. Christ is the head of this body. Elders are not the head of his body. Christ is the head of his body and only Christ. The Holy Spirit is not the head of the body. It is Christ's bride, Christ's body, and Christ is uniquely the head of the church. We don't find the Holy Spirit being called the head, and we don't even find the Father being called the head of the church. That position of the headship of the church is uniquely assigned to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the means for inclusion into the body. Church, literally, the Greek word is ekklesia. The etymology, which doesn't always mean anything, Etymology is how a word was formed. It comes from two words, ek, 
out of, and klesia, calling. So it's to be called out of. But don't put too much weight on etymology because words change. And sometimes the how a word was formed is not what the word means. Um, like dandelion, the flower, or the weed, it's not a flower, it's a weed, dandelion, means tooth of the lion. Well, what has that got to do with, a, with the weed? I, I, got, I don't know. Doesn't, it, there's no connection that I know of. But anyway, that, so the, the word ecclesia, church, is really about assembly. That's the meaning of this word, assembly. So we, by the Holy Spirit, have been made part of an assembly. And that assembly is the very living body of Christ. So the church is expressed through assembly. Assembly is vital to who we are. All believers, without distinction, are part of the body of Christ and ought to be part of the local church, I believe. Because the local church is a microcosm of the larger universal church, which we are all made to be part of. So it seems to me that, the, that we will never function well as individual Christians on an indiv individually. We were not made as Christians to function individually, but we are made to be part of a body. We have been saved to be part of a body, and we are part of the universal body of Christ. So we do not do well in isolation. Nobody does well in isolation, but especially we as Christians will not do well in isolation. Always reminds me when I say that of a hermit that I met in North Carolina one summer when Patsy and I were living out there. I'd never met a true hermit. And this guy was the definition of a hermit. And he seemed just as happy as could be in his hermithood. He had his little hermit house and nobody came to visit him. You know, we were allowed, he had one friend and we were allowed to meet him and fascinating little hermit guy. Um, and I remember hermit man, he told me a story where he was grading the side of a mountain um, and um, the grader rolled and so he jumped free, caught his pants leg on one of the gear shifts and he got pinned and crushed by this, I don't know how heavy graders are, several tons and it just absolutely crushed him into the mud. But fortunately it was mud. And he broke almost every bone in his body guy that was working with him ran over there and grabbed him by the hair, pulled his head up out of the mud, could have broken his neck, and saw that he couldn't breathe because his mouth and nose were full of mud, so he got a stick and reamed out all the mud. And, and then um, I said, well, what hurt the most? Because everything was broken. He was in traction from head to toe. And I said, what hurt the most? And he says, my nose, because that guy ran a stick up both nostrils to clean all that. <laughs> And I, and I said to him, I said, you know, that's a miracle you're alive. You're alive for a reason. And through others as well as myself, that man came to faith in Christ and came out of his hermithood. And it was a delight to see. Started coming to a Bible study that we were a part of. And it was his, his first instinct as a man who'd lived as a hermit for his whole life was to be attached to be with those who know Jesus. Nobody has to teach you that. It's just in you because the Holy Spirit has made you one with God's people. We don't do well. We never meant to do well individually. 
We each need the body, and the body needs each of us. All of us are of value to the body. It says in Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all of us who is over all and through all and in all. The baptism, second sentence, the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at the time when one places his trust in Jesus Christ as personal Savior and not at a time subsequent to it. Now, this is the E-Free Church doctrinal statement. It occurs to me that they could have been a little clearer here. Um, I think, intentionally or not, I, I will assume intentionally that they're now making a bit of a distinction between being baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. That was the first sentence. And now the second sentence, the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at the time, not the baptism by the Holy Spirit. I think they've changed subjects, which is good, because when we look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we find that He does not baptize us with Himself. He baptizes us into the body of Christ. But it's Christ who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. And so we see this throughout Scripture. For example, in Mark 1.8, I baptize you with water, Jesus says, but he, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, speaking of Jesus. In Acts 1.5, Jesus says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 11, 15 to 17, Peter spoke and said, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized you with water, but, I, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as meant here in this second sentence, is being baptized with the Holy Spirit. How many people have been baptized into the body of Christ? All Christians. How many Christians have been baptized with the Holy Spirit? All Christians. So if somebody were to say to you, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? You should with no hesitancy say, absolutely. Well, how much of the Spirit did you get? 100%. So, is there a second baptism? Why would there be a need for a second baptism? If you've got all of the Holy Spirit at your first baptism, and the first baptism took place the moment that you received Christ, you can't get any more Holy Spirit. There is no need for a second baptism. And the scripture says in Ephesians 4, there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. One baptism. There's no such thing as a second baptism. You either got him or you did not. You got all of him, not a part of him. So this baptism with the Holy Spirit or of the Holy Spirit signifies oneness with God and provides the enabling we need for living the Christian life because we could not live the Christian life apart from the Spirit's power. It occurs at the time, 
and this is again from our doctrinal statement, it occurs at the time when one places his trust in Jesus Christ as personal Savior and not at a time subsequent to it. So I read from Acts 11 where Peter was, he says he has to give an account. He's being raked over the coals because he'd gone to Cornelius, a Gentile, went into his home, oh my word, and was preaching to him. And while in the middle of his sermon, how rude of the Holy Spirit, Cornelius gets saved. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And so Peter has to give an account of all this. And he goes, listen, what was I supposed to do? The Spirit of God compelled me to go. He, he, he had, gave me this vision. And he told it three times he gave me the vision. He says, don't consider unclean what I have cleansed. Go to this man. Two men are going to come to you. Go with them. And Peter starts preaching. Just giving the same sermon he'd give to anybody. In the middle of his sermon, the guys believed. Cornelius and his household, they believed. And the Spirit of God indwelt them. And so all Peter could do is say, Amen. But he says, God has given the same gift of the Holy Spirit, baptized them with the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And it happened immediately upon belief. Now, earlier in Acts, you'll see a delay. We acknowledge that. The Twelve disciples did not receive the Holy Spirit immediately upon believing. And then we find that the first, in the instances immediately after, they would have to wait until Peter showed up and prayed for them, and then they received the Holy Spirit. But we're beyond that now by the time we get to chapter 11 of Acts, chapter 10. And from that point on, it's immediate. Because the first time the Jews received, they, they, and the first time the Gentiles, and the, the point of the delay is so that everybody could see that this is one work of God. Jew and Gentile have become one. The barrier, the dividing wall has been broken down. Once that was established, there was no more need for somebody to come and lay hands on someone to receive the Spirit. No more need for that. And so we don't see it happen anymore. You believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. Later in Acts, Paul's going to meet some men from Ephesus. They appear to be believers, but he's not sure where they stand with the Lord. And so he simply asked them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they go, we don't have any idea what you're talking about. We've never heard of a Holy Spirit. And then what were you baptized into, he asked. And he says, well, we were told about John. And, John, and, and, and Peter goes, well, you haven't heard the whole story. And so he tells them about Jesus, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So this baptism of the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit takes place the moment we are saved and not at a subsequent time. There is one baptism, not two. There is no second work of grace. And I hate to add this, but it's important. Speaking in tongues is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is why I believe this has been included in our doctrinal statement that it is, there is no subsequent work. There is no second work. We'll get into the gifts with the next um, statement, the next sentence. But speaking in tongues, whatever it is, it is not something for all Christians and it is never presented in Scripture as the indisputable evidence of the Spirit's filling. In fact, Paul's going to argue that you can be very carnal and speak in tongues which would be true of any of the gifts. Amazingly, the gifts can be, can be exercised with a motivation that is carnal. And he has to warn the people that the purpose of the gifts is to edify the church, and it's not for yourself. 
Then finally, the last sentence, the Holy Spirit bestows spiritual gifts on each believer and makes a godly life possible by filling, in parenthesis, controlling the yielded Christian. So the first part of that, the Holy Spirit bestows spiritual gifts on each believer. You might just look over at 1 Corinthians 12. This is the primary go-to passage on the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, and it starts out by Paul saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. So he wants us to have some knowledge of the subject of spiritual gifts. And then he says in verse 7, To each one, so to every Christian, to every believer, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So what is another word for spiritual gift? Manifestation of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's invisible. How do you know if you've received the Holy Spirit? Well, on the basis of what God's Word says. That's enough. God's Word says, place your faith in Christ and the Spirit of God comes to dwell in you. But there is an evidence of the Spirit of God living in us, and that is the gift that He has given. So the gift, as it were, is a visible evidence of the invisible presence of the Holy Spirit. It is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So every Christian has the Holy Spirit, right? So every Christian has a spiritual gift because the spiritual gift is a manifestation of His presence. So you cannot be saved and not have a spiritual gift. Amen? So if you're saved, you have a spiritual gift. We may not know what it is, but nonetheless, you have one because this is the way that the Spirit of God manifests Himself through you. There's other ways as well, but in this context, spiritual gift is what He's talking about. This happens at the moment that you are saved. He distributes, the Spirit distributes the gifts according to His will. Look at verse 11 of chapter 12. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So none of us were smart enough at new birth to say, this is the gift that I want to have. And if we had been smart enough, I kind of think the Holy Spirit wouldn't have honored it. A little bit like the guy in Acts that says, I want the gift of the Holy Spirit so that I can cast demons out of people. Well, I don't think so. And he gets a little rebuked over that. Can you imagine person before he's saved and, you've, you know, and you've, he's got a little more information than the average unbeliever and, and he's, he knows that if he puts his faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit will come to live in him and he'll be given a, Holy Spirit, he'll be given a gift. And he goes, I'd kind of like to have the gift of miracles. Oh, I'd kind of like, and no, it's not up to us. We do not determine the spiritual gift. The Spirit does. Isn't that good? Then nobody can boast in it. Nobody can say, oh, look what I... The Spirit determines. The Spirit determines which gift. The, spirit, the spiritual gifts are, are... There's many that are mentioned in the New Testament. And so because there are so many mentioned and none of the, or the list are, are identical we can come to the conclusion, I think rightly, that all the spiritual gifts are not listed in the Bible. 
Some of the ones that are listed, 1 Corinthians 12, in this chapter here, we have word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, the gifts of healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of the spirit, tongues, interpretation of the tongues, helps, administration. Those are the ones that are all mentioned here. In Romans 12, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy. Exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy were not mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. In Ephesians 4, a little harder to understand whether he's talking about giftings or whether he's talking about roles, offices, but he mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Those are the three primary passages where gifts are mentioned. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. None of those lists are the same. So maybe there are more spiritual gifts than the ones mentioned here. We don't know. We do know that the Spirit gives them. He determines who's going to get what. It happens at the moment of salvation. And they are for the edification of the body. For the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Not for our good, but for the common good. So as you read further into chapter 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians, you find out that tongues is the only gift that edifies no one but the person who speaks in tongues. bit problematic, isn't it? And yet Paul will say, do not forbid the speaking in tongues. Paul views tongues, at least how he describes it in 1 Corinthians, as a legitimate gift. But he also says it edifies no one except the person speaking in tongues. That's why it should never be spoken in church without an interpreter. And then only two or three at the very most. It should never characterize or dominate a church service. The movie Jesus Revolution is out right now. And... Chuck Smith takes a very prominent role in that movie. He was the founder of the Calvary chapels that are in existence all around the United States and around the world. Chuck Smith is an interesting bird. I like him. Um, he probably spoke in tongues. He was Pentecostal, charismatic, but he never allowed it in any of his churches. That's, an, that's rare to find a man who says, I understand my Bible. And the Bible says it's a legitimate gift, and the Bible says don't forbid it, but it doesn't say that we can't say this is not profitable because it is for the common good. And what good does it do for the church to have a person speaking in tongues during the church? Nobody's being profited from that except the person speaking in tongues. And that's not what church is about. So he said, great. And as I said, I believe he probably spoke in tongues himself, but he never allowed it in his church services. So why did God give a gift that can only edify one person? Well, if it edifies that one person, then that by extinction will edify others, but not as he is practicing it. The other gifts, as they are being practiced, everyone is edified, right? You have the gift of helps. As you practice your gift, everyone is being helped. You have the gift of administration. As you practice your gift, everyone is being helped. You have the gift of tongues. As you practice your gift, only you are being edified. That's the difference. But if I am edified in my personal devotion time, my quiet time with God, 
And you don't even know that I had a quiet time. But does it edify you? Yes. Because if I am built up and strengthened in my private time with the Lord, that in turn spills over in my relationship with everyone else. And so if somebody's speaking in tongues privately and being edified, praise God. That in turn will spill over, that edification that they personally experience will spill over in their interactions with other people. And they never need to mention tongues. Just as I don't need to mention my quiet time. There's no point in mentioning it. The point is the personal edification. We don't need to know what our spiritual gift is in order to exercise it. All we need to know is that spiritual gifts exist. And everybody has one. Therefore, we all need each other. There is no such thing as one Christian who has all the gifts. God never would have done that. I need the body of Christ no matter what my gift is. And the body of Christ needs me with my gift. God has integrated us together in this way. You don't need to know what your gift is in order to exercise it. Just like you didn't need to even know there were spiritual gifts in order to receive a spiritual gift, right? Your ignorance of the spiritual gifts did not keep you from getting a spiritual gift. And your ignorance of what your spiritual gift is does not keep you from it, from it being exercised, does not keep the Spirit from exercising it through you. What is, what is needed, and this comes to the next point of this, is yieldedness. As I am living a yielded life to Christ, the Spirit is free to manifest Himself through my life as He would please. I don't have to know what the gift is, and I don't need to focus on the gifts. Again, if I'm focusing on spiritual gifts, if the church becomes all about spiritual gifts, it's become all about the Spirit. And if it's all about the Spirit, it's not all about Jesus. And the Spirit is being grieved. The Holy Spirit bestows spiritual gifts on each person and makes a godly life possible. Godliness is not possible apart from God in us. Major Ian Thomas used to like to say, and I know I'm not going to quote it as well as he said it, but it takes God in a man to be the man that God intended for a man to be. The Holy Spirit is God in us. It is impossible to live a godly life apart from the indwelling of God. It takes God to be God. He is the means by which we obey and live the life that he has designed for us. Christ in us, as Paul will say in Colossians 1.27, is the hope of glory. Christ in me is the only hope I have of God being glorified in me. And no God in me, no hope of glorifying God. The glory of God is only made possible by the one who is the glory of God living in me. Filling or controlling the, the yielded Christian. There is a difference, a distinction in the Bible between being full of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is full of the Holy Spirit, meaning that when you receive Christ, all of who the Spirit is came to live in you. But we are not always filled with the Holy Spirit. If you tell me that you are, I'm going to ask if I can talk to your spouse. Because <laughs> our wives... Our husbands know better. None of us are always under the control 
of the Spirit of God. So filling is the personal experience, the day-to-day, moment-to-moment experience that we have where we yield to Christ and the Spirit is free to influence us, to control us. Not control as in a robot, not control as in demon possession, but as I've said in, in another sermon, you will never be more free, you will never be more full in the expression of who God made you to be than when you are under the control of the Holy Spirit. He does not dampen your personality. He does not obscure your personality. He lives in you that you might be everything that God always intended you to be. You ever looked at old videos or photos of yourself from when you were a child? Just looking at a photo and you think back, what happened to that person? (laughs) For Christmas, one of my brothers got all the family um, Super 8 videos that didn't have any sound and, and put them all on a thumb drive and gave us each the thumb drive. And my dad, who was um, the world's worst videographer, <laughs> right, dad? <laughs> he would just stip, you know, he didn't even, he didn't organize what he was videographing. You know, he didn't use the whole tape, the whole reel. And so he would just start wherever he left off, and then maybe, you know, so it's just a hodgepodge. And so you're looking at yourself when you were six years old, you're looking at yourself when you're 12 years old, and then on the same reel, you're back to when you were, you know, it's, it's, I don't know how it worked, but it's just a mess. But nonetheless, nonetheless, you look at that six-year-old self, that 12-year-old self, and you think, where is that kid? I'm not what I used to be. (laughs) thanks dad but it's it's through some of why we appear that we have changed is because of just the hard knocks that we've been through the things that we've suffered the ways that we've been abused taken advantage of maybe it's just through sickness that we've had to endure and it, it has just so just shoved us down. But the Spirit of God, isn't it amazing? No matter what's happened to us, and we've all had terrible stuff happen to us, no matter what's happened to us, no matter how much we've suffered, even in the physical stuff that can be so painful, the Spirit of God, as Paul says in Romans 8, gives life to our mortal bodies. And he's not talking about giving immortality to us. That's when we die. But he says he gives life to our mortal body. This life now, the Spirit of God lives in us to enliven us, to give life. Because all this world's going to do is snuff out the life. The world's just about stealing and killing and destroying. But Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And it's through the Holy Spirit that we are brought into life, a life that we could never know apart from him. Filling is a continuous experience. In Ephesians 5, Paul equates it with being under the influence of alcohol. He says, do not get drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. So being under the influence. And that happens by yielding ourselves to his influence. 
presenting ourselves to him. With our second year students at His Hill, we are talking about um, how God is love. And because God is love, there is one thing that He can never do. There are many things. He can't lie, can't steal, he can't be wrong. But there's a particular thing, when it, because He is love, that He cannot do. And that is violate our will. Because love will never violate somebody's will. Love always waits for consent. Consent. This is what we see in the Song of Solomon on, the, on their honeymoon night, wedding night. And he's praising her, he's describing her, and, and, and then he says this, a locked garden is my sister, my bride. And what he's saying is, even though you're mine, I can't just take you. There has to be consent. And so she responds and says, my garden is yours. Consent. God is love. And there is nothing he will ever do in our lives against our consent. The only thing is convict us. But to have his way with us, he can convict. And that's one of the ministries of the Spirit of God is to convict. But the only way that he can produce godliness in us is by consent. A.W. Tozer said, each of us knows God as well as we want to know God. He waits to be wanted, Tozer says. He waits to be wanted. He is, he is love. He is a God who waits for our consent. And when we give that consent, God is free through the Holy Spirit to accomplish in us all that pleases him, all that is in his desire. But we must say yes. So the last point of this article was that we have to yield to him, the Holy Spirit. We say, Jesus, here I am. Thank you that it is advantageous for you to be gone, that I might have your spirit within me. But I know that it is not a guarantee that just because the spirit is in me, that your work will be done. Because I can resist, I can quench, and I can grieve the spirit of God. So God, as I yielded myself to you in faith, believing on you to save me, now I yield to you in faith, believing on you, to bring about the godliness in my life that only you can accomplish. And I thank you that you live in me to will and to do of your good pleasure. And faithful is he who began a good work in us who will bring it to completion. I'll close this in prayer. I do thank you so much, God, for all that you have accomplished for us in Christ. We acknowledge, God, that we are better off having Christ in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit than to have Christ with us on earth. Thank you. You have blessed us. You have, you have made our humanity able to function as you have always intended it to function. And that being by your animating presence. You are life and we have that life within us. 
I pray that we might increasingly, God, be a people who yield to you, that you would be unrestrained as we give our loving consent, that you would be free, God, to do all that you will to do within us. In Jesus' name.